Go ahead and be seated here this evening. A Merry Christmas to all of you here in the room. Again, a Merry Christmas to all of you who aren't physically able to be with us, worshiping right along with us at home. On a Christmas Eve message, uh, a Christmas Eve sermon, I always try to say something funny at the beginning, tell a joke, lighten the mood just a little bit, and I searched and searched. I couldn't find anything that would work. But I did find a little something, a Christmas gift for you, if you will. Consider this my Christmas present to all of you here this evening, because this is a picture of one of our pastors, Pastor Nate. Okay. But this is a picture of new and improved Pastor Nate. It's what his wife, Jackie, refers to as a Christmas miracle. <laughs> miracles. Some of you maybe believe in such things as miracles. Maybe some of you don't believe, or maybe some of you don't know what you believe about these things. Well, what I want to do in our really short time together here on this Christmas Eve is I want us to examine two of the most fundamental and kind of primary objections that people have to the miracle of Christmas, the story of Christmas. The two kind of primary reasons why people maybe struggle to believe in the story of Christmas, reasons why I have struggled in the past, maybe why you here tonight struggle maybe a little bit to believe in such things. And as we look at those two primary objections to the story of Christmas, I hope that we see two things here tonight. First of all, I hope that we see that the miracle of Christmas is perfectly rational. And secondly, I hope that we see that the miracle of Christmas is boldly historical. Perfectly rational and boldly historical. Let's focus on that very first one. The miracle of Christmas, perfectly rational, I say. And by that, I mean this. That one of the primary reasons why people maybe struggle to believe in the miracle of Christmas and the story of Christmas is the virgin birth that Jesus Christ was born of the Virgin Mary. As we're going to sing in Silent Night, round yon virgin mother and child. And for that child to be a male child, for that child to be a son, a male, it means that that male has an X chromosome and a Y chromosome, if you know your basic biology here. And the X chromosome comes from the mother. And the Y chromosome comes from the father and can only come from the father. It is just impossible for a mother to supply the Y chromosome. It can't happen. The X chromosome comes from the mother. The Y chromosome of a male comes only from the father. And so this is what it means in the miracle of Christmas. 
It means that God, in the womb of Mary, out of nothing, created a Y chromosome. And if you think about that, just rationally, logically, if you're here tonight and you do believe in God, and most people believe in a God or some kind of higher power, and by the way, um, the, the reality of God, I think, is the most logical and rational explanation as to why there's something rather than nothing in this wonderful and beautiful and complex and designed earth and universe that we live in. If you're here tonight and you can believe in a God, a higher power, who's the source of all of life, who created all things, a God who created the universe, don't you think it's just rational? Perfectly rational? Logical to believe. If God created the entire universe out of nothing, can't that God create just one tiny little Y chromosome in the womb of Mary? We're just using logic. We're just using reason here. That if God is the creator and designer of the laws of physics and the laws that govern biology, can't that same God then supersede those laws that he himself created? If you believe that God created the universe, creating one chromosome is child's play. It's easy-peasy, lemon-squeezy for God. That's the first thing, just that it's really perfectly rational, the miracle of Christmas, the virgin birth of Christ. Secondly, I want us to examine the story of Christmas and the miracle of Christmas and see that it's boldly, I would say brazenly, unapologetically historical. What do I mean by that? Well, again, a fundamental primary objection that many people have about the story of Christmas and indeed all of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and all the miracles and supernatural aspects of the story of Christ is this, that there is this theory, this idea that has arisen that all of these stories of Christ and of Christmas developed hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years after the time of the life of Christ. That there was this man named Jesus, this historical Jesus, but it was the generations and the generations and the generations that followed him that developed all these stories, and so that the story of Christmas and the life of Christ, really you can see it as more of a myth or a legend. Legends which develop over hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. That's the theory. But again, let's look again at what the Apostle John himself wrote. And no one doubts that there was the Apostle John. This is a real historical person. First John chapter 1, he says, That which was from the beginning, that's God, which we've heard, which we've seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched, with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, and we've seen it, and we testify to it. What is John saying? John is saying we were there. 
We were there and we saw with our own eyes and we heard with our own ears and we even reached out and touched with our own hands. God really did come down into this world, that which was from the very beginning. John, if you know his life, he would end up dying as an old man in a Roman prison camp. Why? Because he was so convinced this was true that he gave testimony to it, he says, which led about not only his downfall, but indeed the martyrdom of all of the disciples, all of the apostles, and thousands upon thousands of those early Christians. And Luke, Luke chapter 2, the well-known, if you don't know anything from the Bible, you know Luke chapter 2 and the shepherds guarding their flocks by night. Luke, in the very first chapter, his very first sentence, describes for us the way in which he actually produced and manufactured and wrote the gospel which bears his name. This is what he says. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who, from the first, those who were there even at the birth of Christ, were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you. Now, what is Luke saying? He's saying, I've carefully investigated these things. I went around to the people who were eyewitnesses, even those people who were eyewitnesses from the very first, people who were eyewitnesses of the very first Christmas. When is Luke writing his gospel? The best scholarship tells us somewhere between 55 and 60 AD. That is only around 25 to 30 years after the life of Jesus Christ. 25 or 30 years. I just cleaned out, my wife, we just cleaned out our whole closet. She made me get rid of all these clothes. I had socks that were over 30 years old that I just got rid of. I have ties right now. I might even have underwear that's been around. Okay, too much information, Pastor. The point is, 25 to 30 years. Mary would have been in her late 60s or early 70s when Luke wrote his gospel. Mary's the one who treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The Greek there is words for memorization. All of those details. Very, very possible that Luke sat down with Mary and said, tell me what it was like. And he wrote it down. I emphasize this, and I just want to share this. You know Alexander the Great... Alexander the Great. We uh, actually do have some biographies of Alexander the Great. The earliest biographies that we have of Alexander the Great, they were written by a man named Arian and another man named Plutarch. And Arian and Plutarch are writing these biographies, the earliest biographies we have of Alexander the Great, over 400 years after his death, in 323 B.C., over 400 years, and historians and scholars look at those biographies and they consider them to be basically fairly reliable sources of information about the life of Alexander the Great. Over 400 years from the time of his death, Luke is writing 25 to 30 years after within the lifetime of the people who were there. This isn't legend, just isn't or mythology. And that means 
that at some point we, you, have to decide. Can't just stay in the middle and say, oh, it's a legend, it's a wonderful story, it's very inspirational, and Jack Frost is nipping at my nose, and isn't this wonderful? You can't just stay in the middle. You really do have to decide when you look at the evidence and say, look, either Christmas is a lie, that Luke and John and the other disciples, for whatever reason, got together and said, hey, let's make up a fake religion and tell up fake stories about this guy, Jesus, who died. And then they went around with all of these lies and started spreading them around for whatever reason. And then, here's the best bit, they all died. They all were martyred. Does that seem to make sense to you? Or, either it's a lie or Christmas is true. And if Christmas is true, oh, what does that mean for your life? It means we can marvel tonight all of the songs, all of the hymns, all of these words like peace and hope and joy and joy to the world, that it's all true. And it means we can marvel and be astounded by all that God has done simply because he wants you to know him because he wants you to have a relationship with him. Look at what he has done. The God who created the universe, the God whose glory shone in those fields outside of Bethlehem and lit up the sky, the gods whose glory shone down, and notice it wasn't just the angel of the Lord which so terrified those shepherds. Oh, no, no. It was the glory of the Lord that shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. You know the King James Version. They were sore afraid, almost as if the weight of the glory and the holiness of God was hurting them as they fell to the ground and it's that awesome God who was wrapped in swaddling cloths and was placed in a manger and who would go on to willingly allow himself to be taken and beaten and nailed to a cross so that you might live. In other words, because Christmas is true, it means God became helpless. God gave up control of his life. Why? So that you, we can begin to give up control of our life, which is the hardest thing we can do to trust in him. There was no room in the inn. There was no room for Christ on that very first Christmas. But maybe for the first time in your life, or maybe for the first time in a long time, maybe you could open up your heart and find room for Christ within. Christ alone on this Christmas Eve be all the glory. Amen.